Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the book of series, ongoing study. Uh, by the way, if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you, there, there's, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. And in fact, the text we're studying today, uh, you can find on page 1002. If you don't have a Bible, I, I just feel like there's nothing better than being able to navigate the scriptures yourself. We're going to put the text on the screen and that sort of thing, but there's just something really cool about being able to hold God's word in your hand. So grab one of those Bibles if you want. And, and for the record, if you are here this morning and you don't own a Bible, a physical copy, uh, I'd love it if you take that Bible with you. We'll, we'll replace it you know, down the road, but I'd love for you just to have that uh, because there's just something really beautiful about holding God's word in your hand. We're continuing in our study of Hebrews, and if you were with us in the last couple of weeks, you know that the, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he begins by elevating the Lord Jesus, which he'll do again and again throughout the text. Uh, one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is there is none higher than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is supreme, superior over angels. Uh, as we saw at the beginning of chapter three, he establishes the idea that Jesus is superior to Moses, which would have been a little bit of a touchy subject to the people he was writing to at the time, because Moses was was a hero who was revered by the people. And so it's interesting because the author comes in and he doesn't say that Moses wasn't a faithful servant, but rather that while Moses, Moses was a faithful servant in the house, the Lord Jesus is the builder of the house. That while Moses was a faithful servant, Jesus is a son. And so Moses is faithful, certainly, but Jesus is worthy of more honor and glory because he is the heir of all things, the one who holds them all together. As he's talking then and thinking about Moses, he then gives us a warning. All throughout the book, we see both encouragements and warnings. We'll talk about that more later this morning. But he gives us a warning by quoting to us out of Psalm 95. And he says, because of the superiority of Christ, we have to be very careful. We have to take heed that we don't follow the pattern of the, the nation of Israel that came before us, the people that God led out of Egypt. And he gives us a little bit of a description of what happened with them. In fact, let's back up just for the sake of context. Let's back up and look at what he says in verse 7. He quotes from Psalm 95. When he does so, he refers to it as the Spirit speaking today. He says, therefore, the Spirit says, in the present tense, something that was actually delivered much earlier. He says in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer of the Hebrews is saying we have to be careful and make sure that we learn from what happened to the Israelites who, even though they saw God, even though he delivered them in works of power and in a very tangible way, they followed the cloud and they followed the pillar of fire. Even though they had seen God work and they knew God's ways, they fell away. They sort of slipped away. In fact, the section we're studying today is kind of sandwiched on either end by a referral to the people of Israel. He says at the end in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He says, look, these people, they saw God. They knew who he was. They had witnessed his power. And yet all but two of them fell as corpses in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. All but two of them failed to enter the rest that God had prepared for them. He says, we don't just want to start well. 
we want to finish well. And the Israelites are an example of a group of people who did not do that in the story of the Old Testament. You know, we all kind of get this idea of finishing well, right? I think um, even as we sort of enter into the fall season, all the new fall television programs are starting this week, right? All the premieres. I don't know if you're television people. I'm like, I'm a television guy, right? I like TV. I know there's a lot of junk out there, but there's also a lot of really great television programming now. And I love fall premieres. But here's the thing. Almost all like television pilots are good. You know what I'm saying? Like the first episode is usually interesting. It's usually good. Sometimes it's not. But for the most part, all those shows start really well. But you and I both know not every show ends well. I mean, the, the best example of a show that ends well is, of course, the greatest television sitcom of all time, Seinfeld, right? Yes, we, we, are in a, we are in agreement as a body of people. Seinfeld, the best television sitcom of all time. That show ended so well because they were at the top of their game, right? Their ratings were higher than they'd ever been. The writing was crisp. Like the character development was awesome. And then one day they're like, that's it. We're done. Asta, see you later, right? And the, and the crowd, their audience, their fans were like, what? We don't want that show to be over. That's a good show, you know? You can contrast an ending like that, a, a television show that ends well, with a show that's sort of a contemporary of Seinfeld. There was a show on ABC called Home Improvement. You remember that one? Home Improvement's not a terrible show. It's a funny show. Tim Allen in that one. He's got some kids. But do any of you remember when the series finale of Home Improvement was? No, nobody does, right? I don't even know if the actors remember it because there was like this long, slow fade, right? This long, slow decline where like the stories got a little tired, the writing got a little tired, they tried a couple of weird things. The kids, no offense to Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but the kids on the show got a little homely, right? And so people stopped watching. And by the time they say, hey, home improvement's going off the air, people are like, that show was still on the air, right? There's a difference between finishing well and finishing poorly. There's a difference between finishing strong and sort of puttering out over time, that long, slow fade. He says, listen, the Israelites, they started really well. God drew them out of Egypt and he did so with power and they saw him and they worshiped him and yet over time these people slid away and that can be and should be an example to us. Because like us, these are people who were familiar with God. At that end section when he said, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? The point he's making is, these weren't the enemies of God. They weren't outsiders, right? These weren't the uninitiated. They weren't people who had no familiarity with the work of God. These were insiders who fell away. People who knew the work and the power and the, and the voice of God very well. And yet, their hearts were hardened. They became wicked in their unbelief. And they never entered the promised land. He says, we have to be on guard that we don't follow in their steps. They're meant to be an example for us. Paul echoes that as well in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, For I do not want any of you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He goes, look, all the Israelites, they had the same resource, right? They were able to see the same things. They witnessed the same things. They experienced the same things. They believed the same things and those things were all spectacular, They they walked under the cloud. They walked across the Red Sea. They ate the manna and they drank water from the rock. Nevertheless, it says in verse five, 
Nevertheless, despite that common experience and that common understanding, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's worth noting, God's people were not overthrown by a foreign enemy or a foreign invader. They were overthrown by their hardness of their own hearts, their own wickedness is what overthrew them. Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Wow. Verse 12, man, it's heavy. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because I think there is sort of a tendency on our part, especially if you're, if you're like a regular church attender, you've been a Christian for a long time to go, I don't need any warnings, right? I don't need the Bible to give me any warnings because like I got the Awana trophies and I memorized all the Bible verses and I come to church every week and I put money in the offering plate and I walk old ladies across the street or whatever. Like I'm doing all the churchy stuff. I don't need anybody to warning, to, to warn me. And yet the writer of the Hebrews, or, or excuse me, before the, like that, what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians in 10, Paul says, if you think you stand... If you think you're not in danger, if you think you don't need a warning, be extra careful. Otherwise, you end up on this slippery slope, this slow slide away from belief, from a heart that believes, an obedient heart that's rooted in belief. You see, the Israelites didn't get up one morning and say, you know what would be fun today? Like, we've been walking here in the desert for a little while. We've tried a couple of different things. You know what would be fun today? Let's say we stop trusting in God. How, who's in? Like, let's just give it a go. We'll just see what it's like. Let's be backsliders today, right? There is no place in the Bible where the Israelites looked at each other and said, you know what? Let's just try something new. Let's stop listening to God. Let's stop trusting God. No, that wasn't just like a, a, a switch they flipped. That happened over a period of time. There was this slow fade, this slippery slope in which the people, piece by piece by piece, got to the place ultimately where they stopped following him. But it wasn't because they took a vote to stop following him. By the time in Numbers 14 that the people of God stopped following God, there's a long road of declination that happens before they get to that. I want to just sort of do a a jet tour. We're going to move really quick. But I want you to see the history of the fade of the people of Israel. So let's start in uh, Exodus chapter 6. We've already studied this. In fact, earlier this summer in our series in Exodus, we looked at Exodus chapter 6. But I'd like for us to look at it again just as a refresher. Remember that in Exodus chapter 6, that immediately follows the place where Moses and Aaron had gone to Pharaoh. They said, hey, God wants you to set his people free. He wants you to turn loose of the Israelites, right? And if you were with us in the study earlier, uh, you'll remember. If not, you can go back and listen to the podcast or whatever. But Pharaoh looks at Moses and Aaron and says, I don't know the God you're talking about. I've never heard of him. And what's more, I don't care what he says. I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. And it tells us in Exodus chapter 5 that Moses increases the workload, excuse me, Pharaoh increases the workload of the people of Israel and he takes away their resources and makes their, their, their labor harsh and brutal. The people grumble and complain They're frustrated with Moses. Moses looks at God and says, what are you doing here? You have not delivered the people at all. 
So in Exodus chapter six, God reaffirms his promises to the people of Israel. Exodus chapter six, verse six, God says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, if you were with us in the earlier study, you know that when God affirms that, you you sort of expect the people will be like, yeah, awesome, right? God is with us. He's going to deliver us. He's going to rescue us from our enslavement. He's going to rescue us from our slave drivers. Not only is he going to deliver us, he's going to lead us into the promised land. He's going to give us the land that he promised to our forefathers. Like you would sort of expect that there would be like high fives all around, right? In response to God's declaration. But look at what it says here in verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The first step on the slippery slope, the first step on the slippery slope is that they stopped listening to God. They stopped listening to him. That's the first step. And why didn't they listen to him? Because the voice of God was drowned out by their own self-pity. The voice of God was drowned out by their harsh slavery and their broken spirit. I think it happens a lot in our own lives that we stop listening to God because we're so busy listening to our own internal monologue. We've got sort of this running monologue inside ourselves about all the injustice that's being done to us and all the things we would do differently if we were in charge and all the people who are being mean to us and how hard and difficult our lives are. And we start listening to that on repeat so loud that when God says, I am with you and I am for you and I love you and I have a plan for you and I'll protect and provide you, we can't hear him. Because we stopped listening to his voice, we started listening to ours. The people first stopped listening. It doesn't take very long before then they stopped trusting him. When we get to Exodus chapter 14, remember the people of Israel are trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, right? They followed the direction that God gave them. They went the way God told them to go. And they're pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And they freak out. And they look at Moses and they go, why'd you bring us out here? Because there weren't enough places to bury us in Egypt. Like now we're out, it would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to die on the shores of the Red Sea. Remember, Moses looks at them and says, listen, you don't need to freak out. All you have to do is be still and see the deliverance that the Lord will provide for you today. This enemy you see in front of you, you'll never see again, he says in Exodus chapter 14. What had happened there? The people had stopped trusting God. They first stopped listening. By the time they get to the shores of the Red Sea, they've stopped trusting him. They don't believe him. They don't believe he can do what he says he's going to do. They don't believe he's going to follow through. They don't feel like he's there. And what they start trusting in instead is their own decisions, their own intellect, their own wisdom. It's no wonder that Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to mankind, but the end is death. We start to believe our own logic. We believe our own internal monologue. They stop trusting God. It's funny. I I recently had the opportunity to look at some pictures of myself from eighth grade. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at, I'm I'm hoping you've never seen pictures of me in eighth grade, but uh, I, I had, I'll just be honest with you. And this will come as a shock, I think to some of you, but in eighth grade, I had 
the stupidest hair. I had the stupidest hair. I, I'm guessing that might be shocking to you that I, just simply because I had hair at all. Um, but I had hair in eighth grade and it was stupid. It was like curly on the top, but I put a lot of product in it. So it had like mousse and gel and hairspray to the point where it was like hard, right? It looked wet all the time. I don't know why, but it was like wet and curly. And if you, if you snap, it would like snap off. That's how like crusty it was, right? So it's curly and wet looking on top. And then it was like long and wispy in the back, like a mullet, but grosser, right? And I can remember as an eighth grader, I can remember times where I'd like be leaving the house and my mom would go, Darren, don't, please don't go out like that. Your hair looks stupid, you know? And I'm like, it does not look stupid. This is cool. Like, this is a cool look. And she's like, who is telling you that? I'm like, everybody thinks that but you. Now listen, nobody thought it except for me. I looked in the mirror and I thought, this looks awesome. And I wish, now I see pictures of myself, I wish that I had trusted her voice instead of my own. I wish that I had listened to her counsel instead of my own because I have these pictures now that will not go away, right? I wish that I'd listened, but what was I listening to? I was listening to my own voice. The people of Israel, they first, they, they don't just decide not to follow God. They stop listening, they stop trusting, and then it's only a matter of time before they can't even see him. They stop seeing God in their midst. By the time we get to Exodus 17, you can flip there if you want. In Exodus 17, they're thirsty. They're thirsty. And again, they look at Moses and they say, why'd you bring us out into the wilderness just to die? There's no place for us to die in Egypt. We're thirsty, you brought us out here, you're not providing anything for us. Is God even among us, they say. What's that mean? Well, it isn't just an issue of whether or not they're thirsty. You know, a lot of times we, we feel like there are sort of these, uh, like, like our problems have to do with the actual sin, right? Like our problems have to do with the greed or the pride or the lust or the whatever. But at the heart of every symptomatic sin in our life, at the core of it is unbelief. At the core of it is unbelief. And we in our lives can work really hard to like try and sort of change the places where we're doing symptomatic sin, but the reality is we'll continue to follow into symptomatic sin until we take care of the unbelief. The people were saying practically, we're thirsty, there is no water, where's the water? Nobody has any water. But at the core, the, the, the actual root of the issue is God isn't here. In Exodus chapter 17, verse seven, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. He called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The people stopped listening. They stopped trusting. And it was only a matter of time before they stopped seeing him. I wonder if you see the hand of God at work around you. Do you notice when he's moving in your life? Do you see the places where he's showing himself strong? Do you see his presence in the midst of your circumstances? Have you gotten to the place where your ears are stopped, your heart is hardened, and as a result, you don't even see him in the working of regular life? They stop listening, they stop trusting, they stop seeing, and then as they continue to slip down that slope, by the time we get to Exodus 32, they stop worshiping. They stop worshiping him altogether. Exodus 32, you can turn there if you want. Kind of a famous passage, right? It's the one where Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law. And while he's gone, the people of Israel, the ones who walked across on the dry Red Sea, they look at each other and they go, Moses is taking a long time. What say we build us a golden cow to dance around and worship? Because it seems like maybe a golden cow is the one who delivered us from Egypt. It doesn't make any sense. 
but they stop worshiping. Exodus 32, verse one, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods, lowercase g, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. You see, when we stop listening and we stop trusting and we stop seeing God in our midst, it's only a matter of time before we go, why would I worship somebody I can't hear and see and trust? Why in the world would I worship him? They stop worshiping him because they're on this slippery slope. Worship doesn't make any sense. Even when they talk about Moses, they talk about him as the one who led them out of Egypt. Moses didn't lead them out of Egypt. God did that. But they don't see God and they don't hear him and they don't trust him. And so in his absence, in the absence of Moses, they say, let's worship something here at hand. You see, worship is a result of seeing and trusting and listening to God. We respond to him. It's interesting, even in culture today, even in our church, I hear people all the time who are like, well, you know what? People just don't worship. The people in our church, they're not worshiping. Or there are churches all around the country who are like, well, we gotta pick the right kind of music and we gotta have the right kind of lighting and we gotta have lasers and all this stuff so people will worship God. And if you don't have it dialed in the right way, people won't worship. And I say, that's crazy. People say, look around, man. When you sing hymns, nobody worships. Or if you don't sing hymns, nobody worships, right? And I go, let, let, me, let me tell you, I, I adore my wife. I adore her, Right? I would do anything for her. She is my best friend and a person that I love more than anybody in the world. But can I, can I tell you, like, I really, I only really express my affection to her when she wears a blue dress, right? I like her in a blue dress, but if she decides to wear something yellow or orange, I really don't have time for her. You know, like, it's just not my thing. Uh, if she wears a t-shirt, no. Uh, if she wears a tank top, no thanks, right? I don't like any of that. I just want to see my wife in a, in a blue dress. And I can only express my affection to her when she's wearing a blue dress. You look at me and go, you're stupid, right? That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense, right? Because we know, we understand that whatever my wife puts on becomes beautiful because she's wearing it. I don't love her because she wears this dress or that dress or this color or that color. Whatever my wife decides to put on becomes better because of who she is. My love and respect and affection for her is rooted in who she is, not in the decorations she maybe applies. And so it seems crazy to me that when we come into the church, People go, well, I can only worship God when there's rock music, or I can only worship God when the lights are down, or the lights are up, or the thing is short, or it's long, or I know the songs, or whatever. Listen, all of those things are just adornment. They're just things that are meant to focus us on Jesus. And when you get focused on the thing, it's like me saying, I only love my wife when she's wearing blue. And that simply isn't true. The people stop worshiping because they don't see him, and they don't hear him. They don't trust him. And after they cease to worship him, they continue down the slippery slope to the time, by the time we get to Numbers 11, they stop thanking him. 
They lose all sense of gratitude. In Numbers chapter 11, we see the people grumble and complain because they don't like manna. Now, manna was a food source that God provided for them supernaturally, right? They didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to earn it. God gives them manna every day. All they got to do is go out and collect it. They grind it up and bake it into cakes. It's supposed to taste like coriander seed. I personally, I mean, nobody knows exactly what manna tastes like, but I'm guessing it probably tastes like Twinkies, or I'm hoping it tastes like Twinkies, (laughs) because I plan to eat a lot of it when I get to heaven, right? I I just, that seems sponge cake and frosting. Thank you. So, um, They've got manna, and yet the people in Numbers chapter 11, they start to grumble because they're not satisfied with what God has supernaturally provided. Numbers chapter 11, verse four, it says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. All we have to eat is this stuff that God supernaturally provided to us that we didn't have to work for and that the rest of human history will all wonder what it tastes like and not be able to have any, right? That's all we've got. What's happening here? They've lost their gratitude. They see the provision of God and they don't care about it. They want something else. What God has provided isn't enough for them. They say we want meat. God ends up responding to that further in the chapter. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, God says, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Listen, they thought they were rejecting the manna. God says, you're rejecting me. He provided quail 18 inches deep and as far as you can walk in any direction. And they were sick of meat by the time they got done with it, right? They stopped listening. They stopped trusting. They stopped even seeing God. They stopped worshiping. They stopped thanking. And so by the time they get to the shore of the Jordan River and the promised land is on the other side, it's no wonder they stopped following him. That's the end of the story. They stopped following him. But why would they follow someone they don't trust and don't worship, that they're not grateful to, that they can't see or hear? Well, of course they didn't follow him. The spies go into the land to scout it out. God says, go in and see the the, the land, see where the cities are and who the people are and where the food is. And the leaders of Israel come back and they go, oh, we can't do this. We can't take the land because the cities are well fortified. The people in it are giants. We look like grasshoppers to ourselves and to our enemies. And two out of the 12 leaders of Israel, two, Joshua and Caleb go, yeah, so we look like grasshoppers. Who cares? We're not gonna argue that. We do seem very grasshopper-like, Right? But if God is with us, what difference does it make what we look like? If God is with us, what difference does it make what our enemies think of us? If God is with us, we can definitely do it. Let's go in and take the land. And it says in Numbers 14 that the people of Israel pick up stones to kill them, Joshua and Caleb. To kill them, why? Because of their faithfulness. Because we want to get rid of people whose hearts aren't hardened when ours are. Because we want to silence the voice of people whose hearts have not been hardened when ours are. 
Now, the people didn't just decide not to follow God. They didn't get up one morning and say, how about if we don't go into the promised land? They stopped listening. They stopped trusting. They stopped seeing him. They stopped worshiping. They stopped being grateful or thanking him. And then when it came time, of course, they didn't follow him. So the writer to the Hebrews looks at us and says, let's learn the lesson. Let's learn the lesson. Back to Hebrews chapter 3. He says, take care then, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, take care. Sit up straight or pay attention, lest there be in any of you. It's possible for any and all of us to fall into this trap. The warning is broad. Take care lest there be in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. By the way, the ESV translation, this is one of the only places where I don't actually like the ESV translation. It's translated in the English Standard Version. It says a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away. That feels too passive. The, the original language here is, is more purposeful. It's a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away, that turns from the living God. When God talks about the Israelites in Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter two, verse 13, excuse me, verse 11, God says, has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He goes, does this make any sense to anybody? They've turned away from me. That's the first evil. I'm a spring of living water. And what they've done instead, they go, no, we don't need that. Instead, we're gonna dig a cistern for ourselves over here. It's cracked and broken. It won't hold anything. We'll never be satisfied. We'll never be sustained. But we're gonna put all our hope in this cistern we built ourselves. God says, I don't get it. And yet, isn't that so much like our lives? Don't you see that again and again and again in our culture? The insatiability of our culture that is never satisfied, even they're trying to fill up their own cisterns. Ecclesiastes says, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. That we're never satisfied except in the person of Christ. And yet the the spring of living water is over our shoulder, and here we are digging a pit and pouring stuff into it, hoping to be satisfied and always being frustrated and disappointed. He says, no, take care. Take care. Heed this, pay attention, lest there be in any of us a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Hebrews, later in Hebrews chapter 12, it'll talk about a root of bitterness that can end up corrupting the whole group. We have to be diligent, we have to pay attention. And he gives us a solution in Hebrews chapter three. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. This is verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word exhort might not be a familiar one to you, so let me tell you what it means. I'm assuming that some of you go, well, that seems like a churchy word I don't get. The word exhort actually is descriptive of exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. The writer to the Hebrews throughout the entire book is both encouraging and warning at the same time. Encouraging and warning, encouraging and warning. That's what exhort means. So when he says to us, take care, check your heart, make sure you don't fall away or turn away from the living God, exhort one another every day. What's he saying? Do what I'm doing right now in my letter. Do what I'm doing right now in my sermon. He says, encourage and warn, encourage and warn every day. Not something once a year, not something even once a month, and certainly not once a week. It isn't enough. If if your pursuit of the Lord Jesus involves weekly 
gathering with Christians. It's not enough. He says daily. That's why we have to be connected with each other. That's why a couple of weeks ago we did baseball bingo out by the gym. It's why today after church we're doing our family fun fiesta picnic thing. I, I'm, that's probably not the right word. But why, why do we do a thing like that? Because we want to see each other. We want to know each other. We want to get our arms around each other so that we have the, the ability to encourage and warn daily because it's a daily process, this slipping away. We have to be in each other's lives. And note here too, it says, exhort one another. It doesn't say, make sure that once a week you come to a professional Christian pastor and have him exhort you and your friends. No, it's not, it's not my job except in the fact that I also am a disciple like everybody else. My job is the same as every disciple's job, and that is to exhort one another. we got to be in each other's lives. My exhortation doesn't have any greater value or weight than anybody's. This is something we're called to in life together. It's why, it's why we do ears to hear, right? We do a daily devotional. People in our church that write a devotional online that we all should be tied into because it's a way to daily, daily exhort, to warn and encourage each other. It's why we have adult fellowships. It's why we have small groups. It's why we do women's Bible studies. I mean, even the elders, we do a, we do a monthly elders meeting. And I'll tell you, there's a, there's a significant chunk of our elders meetings every month that is spent talking about the ways, tangibly, that our, the, our elders are exhorting the people in our church, warning and encouraging them. Now, to be honest with you, I'd love it if those elders meetings were a little bit shorter. Like, I don't love the fact that they go as long as they do, but I love hearing the ways that practically our elders are leaning into the lives of other people to warn and encourage them. And they take a lot of heat for that. But what are they supposed to do? Stop? Are they supposed to stop exhorting because people don't like it? Were Joshua and Caleb supposed to shut up because people wanted to throw rocks at them? No. No, this is what we're called to. Take heed, take care, lest you slip away. Lest you find in yourself an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily. And then look at what he says. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Hebrews 3.14. When I learned it and heard it, it changed my entire way of thinking about being a follower of Christ. When I first learned it, I learned it in a different translation. I learned it this way. Uh, We know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. But it says the same thing. What's he talking about? He's talking about continuance. You see, I grew up in a tradition, as maybe many of you have, that really felt like the whole center point of the Christian life was conversion. Like the most important day was the day I surrendered my life to Christ and I was saved or whatever you want to call it. And we all have interesting conversion stories. Probably you went to the Billy Graham crusade or you listened to Greg Laurie or your mom shared the gospel in the back of the car or whatever. And when you talk to people about their relationship with Jesus, they go, oh, let me tell you about when I met Jesus. But what this is saying is something different. It's not saying, hey, you know you're sharing Christ if you had an incredible conversion story. You know you're sharing Christ if you had a dramatic transformation He says, we know we share in Christ if we continue. I was married on May 25th, 1996. May 25th, 1996. And it was an awesome day, right? Beautiful flowers, delicious cake. All our friends came. The music was sweet. I remember standing at the front of the church with my knees shaking and my hands sweaty. I literally can picture in my head the moment where the doors at the back of the church opened and I see my bride for the first time. And I'm like, I can't believe this girl's gonna marry me, right? That was an incredible day. We exchanged vows. It was one of the most incredible days of my life. But for all the beauty and for all the meaning, can I tell you that that day, May 25th, 1996, my wedding 
only become significant when they put my cold, dead body in a casket, having been faithful to that woman every day after. See, it's not about a great ceremony. It's not about a beautiful celebration. It's about a life of continuance that follows those vows. Any day, you know this, any day between now and the day they put my body in that casket, it can be proven in my life that my vows were meaningless because I become unfaithful to her. Many of us think about our Christian life in terms of a conversion story. But listen, what it's saying is we know the proof of our sharing or participating in Christ is not the great beginning, but the continuance. We know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. That means that you know my conversion story will be beautiful when they put my cold dead body in a casket, having been faithful to the Lord Jesus every day after. That continuance is important. And it's important to note here too that what it's saying is not that we earn our salvation or that we earn favor in Christ. It doesn't say that this will be true if we continue, but it says the proof that it is true is that we continue. It's not true if we continue. The proof of it is true if if we continue. That it's about continuance. He says we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap. I wonder if you look into your own life and you find yourself on that slippery trajectory. People who have stopped listening or stopped hearing, they, they, they've stopped seeing God or trusting him. Maybe you've, you've found yourself uninterested in worship. There's no longer any gratitude. And if you've come that far, then it's only a matter of time before you stop following him as well. Let's take heed, you and I. Let's all of us take heed that we don't find in ourselves a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but that we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. And the way that happens is for us to exhort, both warn and encourage each other on a daily basis. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a, a real clear understanding of the ways in which this warning applies to our own lives. Would you give us the ability to contextualize it in our own scenario, to look for the places where we've started to slip, where our ears have become stoppered or our eyes have become closed, our heart has become hardened. Would you draw us into community, into conversation that would exhort us? And would you help us to be those who exhort one another so that we don't become people like the people of Israel who started great and fell in the wilderness? God, I pray that you would move in us I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.